Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back, guys, to this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast, where we discuss hemiparesis as it may be presented in paces with Dr. Paul Sellers, a consultant in stroke medicine from Southmead Hospital in Bristol. Paul was a truly fantastic guest and gave up so much of his time that we've had to split this episode again into one of our double headers. The entire episode is well worth the listen, so look out for part two in our next episode. Not only that, but the 31st of January marks the second anniversary of the first episode of the podcast. So a massive thank you to all of our fantastic guests and for all of you wonderful listeners for making the podcast what it has grown to be. And lastly, a final shout out to some solid gold legends who have donated to the show on the Buy Me A Coffee page. So thank you to Umar, to Susie, Stuart, Andrew and Abia for your generous donations to kick off 2023. But enough of me for now. Let's get stuck into this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and today we're joined in our quest to conquer the MRCP Paces by Dr. Paul Sellers. Paul is a uh, consultant in stroke medicine at North Bristol NHS Trust, also called Southmead Hospital uh, in Bristol, and he has been kind enough to give up a bit of his time to talk through hemiparesis as it might be presented in a PACES station, most likely a neurology station, which would be a station three. So, Paul, really grateful for you giving up some time for us today. Oh, I'm honoured to be invited, Sam. Absolute pleasure. And not only that, but Paul will be taking on our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant, at the end of the show. <laughs> this is the quiz where our where our consultants take on a specialist subject of their own choosing with a caveat that it can't be to do with medicine. So, Paul, just tease ahead to the end of the show. What have you chosen as your specialist subject? Oh, well, I used to have hair down to my nipples and, and was very much a, uh, a jump around sort of person and loved the heavy metal thing. So I, I've gone for Metallica, but I must admit, if it goes past about the year 2000, I may not be able to answer anything. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I absolutely love this as a quiz the consultant topic. As ever, it was an amazing, uh, amazing topic to research for. So more on that at the end of the show. And actually, if you'd have asked me when I first started this podcast, what will a consultant in whichever medical specialty choose as as their special subject? Metallica would not have been one of them. But without further ado, let's get on to hemiparesis. So, Paul, I guess the first uh, question would be, why do we commonly see hemiparesis presented uh, as, a, as a station in paces? I guess stroke is frighteningly common, horribly common. You know, it's, uh, it affects a very large percentage of the population. And I guess the other thing that is almost becoming increasingly so is it affects young people. And the young people who get severe strokes often get very invasive treatments as well. So they are the people who live through stroke and rehabilitate well, but with a lot of problems associated with that, which are signs for paces. So you may get young people or old people with a problem that has a very stable sign and can be easily examined in paces. And I guess the other thing is that when someone cancels, the person on the stable person on the stroke ward is an easy win for the paces examiners to bring down. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder, Paul, can we just start with the absolute basics for our listeners? So when we talk about patients who've had a stroke, and by and large, this is going to be a podcast about strokes. We will talk about the differential diagnoses of strokes when we come on to those a little bit later. We'll talk about stroke mimics, but by and large, this is going to be a podcast about strokes. So, Paul, when we talk about a stroke, how do we define that? And what sort of, how can we categorise strokes into, into the various different types? So I guess my work on a, on a very basic level is just about clots and blood in the brain. And, and that is essentially stroke medicine. Just as a slight divulgence, one of the great joys of stroke medicine is on its, on its face, stroke medicine is very protocolized and simple. But as soon as you scrape the surface, it's lovely and complex. But just for the, the, the purposes of a, a stroke podcast for uh, paces, it's, it's clots or blood. Excellent. And we know that the manifestations of either an ischemic injury or a hemorrhagic stroke are going to be the types of things which we're going to talk about. And these are often often lead to um, chronic deficits, which we're able to observe in, in the populations which you see on, on a day-to-day basis. And so usually the first thing we talk about is what type of station this is going to be. And by and large, it's going to mostly be a uh, station three. So it's going to be imagining ourselves in the shoes of our examination candidates who will see a vignette, something like this person has presented with weakness, for example. I can't think of much else beyond that, which someone may present with, which you'd be expected to examine. If we move straight on to the findings of this examination station, like all of them, you'll have six minutes to perform your examination, and then you'll have four minutes of discussion and questions from your examiner. And so we always start our examination stations by our first impressions of the patient, so our end-of-the-bed examination. So, Paul, when we come to these patients, what are we most likely to see from the end of the bed on a gross general inspection? So I guess when you're coming into paces with, with the sort of weakness, is weakness can be caused by such a multitude of things, but the inspection is really your money shot. This is where you're going to diagnose stroke because you're going to be asked with your wanting to examine the upper limb or the lower limb quite often or cranial nerves. So you're you're probably going to be led in fairly heavily to what you're examining. 
the only way you're going to be able to do well in this station is the observation bit. And that's that's true for a lot of the paces cases. But, you know, it's 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 so important and taking your time and trying to calm those nerves and just looking and examining and, and also trying to get some cheeky little clues is going to be what makes or breaks your station here. So I guess with stroke, what we're really looking for, so the main thing you want to be looking for is someone, if you've got a lead-in of weakness, usually stroke comes in in sort of patterns. And we've got posterior strokes, which I'm not going to go into too heavily at the moment because they're a bit more complicated. But if we talk about the main common ones, either talking about lacuna strokes, where they're going to be weak in face, arm and leg, or they're going to have a tax or pax where usually it groups into face and arm or leg. And if you can bring out a hemiparesis that is associated with facial weakness, you know instantly it's not the spine. So you're you're instantly led to cranial causes. And if you can localize that in any way, and certainly if you can try and tease out any cortical signs, and by that I mean sort of any aphasias or, or neglect, there is really nothing else in paces that they're likely to bring in. So it's it's all about that sort of narrowing down. And, and with paces, as you go through your examination, really that is the main crux of what you're doing is trying to narrow it down to something that's very wide into your finer diagnosis. And I would say for stroke, you're not going to do that in your general neurological examination because all you're going to pick up is an upper motor neurone lesion. So it's all going to be in that inspection. And if you can get face and arm, you're pretty much sorted, I'd say. You've got it there. It's a brain lesion that's chronic that's been brought into paces. It's probably going to be something like a stroke or a space-occupying lesion. So I guess that's my main tip is look at how they are. So what you're really going to be looking for is they'll they'll have a face, which will be an upper motor neurone. So it will mainly be affecting the lower part of the face. If they've got limb involvement, especially upper limb, it's likely to be flexed. Wrists going to be flexed. Their hands, their fingers are going to be flexed. Or it may be, especially if it's an acute patient, they may be sort of out and extended because we're trying to avoid that flexor, flexor posturing. So that it may be completely flaccid paresis and out and and extended. So don't just because it's extended doesn't mean it's not a stroke and a promoter neurone. That may be a positioning thing. Also, you may want to look along that level is often, especially if they've been brought in for a ward or they've had a very severe stroke, often we're putting on splints to try and break that flexure posturing. So you may see what almost looks like a it almost looks like sort of a big plastic mold that sits over the palm up to the wrist and has sort of straps over it to try and keep that wrist in extensor posturing. That splint may also be on the table. So making sure that you're looking around, see those splints. And similarly for the leg, which would typically be an extensor posturing, you're looking to see if we've got any orthosis or what what look like big boots, like big moon boots, but without all the foam from the 80s. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the moon boots, but they're they're there to try and keep it flexed. The other things that you may want to look at is walking aids and things. They may not help you to the exact diagnosis, but are important to your sort of presentation and what you might say about function. And I guess if you're really looking for those sort of higher points is trying to think about the sort of patients that get brought in. I know from medical student teaching, we bring in a chap again and again who's had a hemicraniectomy and things like that is looking at just examining the the head, the skull to see if they have a bit of skull missing. 
and seeing if if they're undressed in their abdomen, they may have a bit of skull in their abdomen from hemicraniectomy. Looking again for the, I doubt they would bring in someone with an NG tube, but it's possible. But they very well may have a peg tube. So again, it's just trying to expose that sort of bit of the tummy where the tube's sticking out. And again, you may you may see that. And I guess the other thing is trying to get those cheeky marks. So if you can approach the patient from the left and shake their hands, introduce yourself and get them to introduce you to you, you've then managed to get some speech and you've also tested for neglect or severe neglect on the left. So whilst in paces, you would obviously examine from the right while you're inspecting and looking round, you may want to introduce yourself from the left and you've just, because left weakness is usually associated with neglect, right weakness is usually associated with speech. You can just get those little cheeky bits because you're not going to have a lot of time. If you can get those bits, you've taken away all the other weird, the other upper motor neurone sort of differentials. So MS is unlikely to cause neglect or aphasia, although it can, it's, it's less likely. So if you can pick up aphasia from introduction, or you're approaching from the left and they actually ignore you and you have to walk round to the right, you've you've got it. This is definitely a stroke and you're you're there, you're plain sailing then. Amazing, amazing. So much info we're able to get straight away without even performing any real any real examination of the patient. So Paul, I just want to pick you up on one thing which you mentioned there, which you sort of brushed over, but I feel it's important for our listeners to understand, which is you talked about tax and packs. And so I wonder if we can un excuse the pun we can unpack some of that and um... unpack the packs yeah so this is a bit of a tricky one actually sam because in in stroke medicine we're actually moving away from that terminology a little bit so certainly your average examiner who will not be a stroke or neurologist who is examining you on that case will obviously know stroke as the tax packs lax pox but certainly with the advent of thrombectomy, we are actually moving to more naming by vessels. So MCA syndrome, PCA syndrome, and it starts to get really complicated because you, I mean, even I forget all the, the posterior arteries of trying to remember which ones are affected and causing which posterior syndromes. So it may be something that goes away eventually, but certainly in the next five years, we will still probably be talking about tax packs, lax packs. Yeah. And this, and if we just put a name to that, that's the Bamford classification of stroke, isn't it? That's correct. And, you know, this was done in the 90s, the Bamford classification, but it is so useful. And actually, I remember as a medical student, it's how I learned brain neuroanatomy. It's really quite simple what you have to learn. And if you can remember that, then you basically remember the main functions of the brain from that classification it's it's actually very useful and it's also very useful in terms of prognosis it's useful in terms of etiology of stroke and it's also useful in thinking about likelihood of events happening again um so it is very useful in in stroke medicine but we are starting to move away from those terms but i guess the main thing is we're talking about tax and packs which are essentially fairly big brain injuries and they involve involve cortical signs and what as i said what we mean by that is aphasias or neglect depending on which side of the brain is affected so right-sided weakness left brain causes aphasias left-sided weakness right brain causes neglect so tax and packs must involve one of those elements and that's their main differential and the difference between tax and packs is whether it's weakness, a higher cortical sign, and hemianopia, or just two out of those three. 
packs being all of them. And then lax, what we're talking about is actually really tiny infarcts, but where all of your motor fibers come down from the brain and concentrate within the internal capsule. So we're not talking about that cortical sign anymore. We're talking about pure motor, pure sensory or motor sensory. And what we tend to see in terms of symptoms there is that the tacks and packs tend to affect an artery. So if you're thinking about tacks, it's usually sort of MCA. So middle cerebral artery, where you're affecting mainly arm and face, or if it's anterior cerebral artery, you're affecting leg. So you tend to see it in those sort of little patterns, whereas lacuna, because it's small and it's where it's all condensing, you tend to see face, arm and leg. So you get all of the motor tracts involved. So that's that, that's the main things. Now, POTS, I mean, they're just a bit of a shambles. That's when the the Bamford classification, they were just like, what else have we got? Oh, all that other stuff at the back of the brain that we don't really know how to classify very well. So this range is, so essentially it's either pure visual field loss, cerebellar, or brainstem. So there's sort of three distinct problems within the brain. So you've either got just you're missing your fields, but importantly, that also involves cognition. And then you've got your cerebellar signs, and then you've got your brainstem signs and your brainstem. So obviously, you guys on this channel will probably know about hemianopias and cerebellar. Brainstem confuses the hell out of people, and it's got loads of eponymous syndromes. And to be honest, I gave up learning those many years ago. The only exception to that rule is the lateral medullary syndrome that I think is probably worth learning because it is one of the more common ones. But other than that, please ignore those huge tables of all those horrible eponymous syndromes. They will not get you extra points or, or even known by most stroke doctors. <laughs> Maybe something we can uh, go through on another day. But yeah, definitely in terms of posterior circulation strokes, then what we'll probably do is end up doing an episode on that in in due course and discuss it more in detail. But today we're very much talking about anterior circulation uh, strokes. So we're talking about, as Paul's already mentioned, the Bamford classification. So anyway, slight digression there. We're moving back to our examination now. <laughs> <laughs> so we've gone through inspection inspection yeah so examination so i guess so again you've expected the whole thing and as i say i can't stress that's the most important bit but when you actually get to your limb that you're examining i guess you can you can expect to see a number of things depending on the acuity of the stroke so you may see a flaccid paresis with very low tone that's extended you may see swelling of that arm as the sort of lymphatics and the contracture aren't working, the venous return isn't working, you can see swelling. Or if it's been a very long time, you can sort of get a disuse atrophy, but you won't see all the fasciculations and things that you would see in lower motor neurone, which is the important bit. What you also quite might often see in terms of chronic stroke is that increased tone. But remember, tone isn't necessarily, you don't just because you don't see the high tone doesn't mean it's not a, a stroke, certainly in the acute period, but even in the chronic period, especially if they've got contraction there and movement, you you may not see that sort of curling of the arm or, or even when we get to the examination of, of, of the tone, only about 50% of people actually get that very high tone. So just because it's not there doesn't mean it's it's not a stroke. And that brings us on nicely to the next part, which is is tone. 
I think this is a, a really important part. So in terms of a promoting your own, you're expecting that high tone and it's meant to follow this sort of paradigmal sign. And sorry, I'm doing rotation marks, but I realise there's no video associated with this podcast. The, <laughs> the, the typical thing is that that sort of flexed high tone that's all sort of curled round in the arm and extended in the leg. And I guess that's different from things like Parkinson's disease or something like that, where the, the tone is, is universally high in Parkinson's. So you get the tremor, so you get the cogwheeling, but it's throughout all muscle groups and it's constant. Whereas in stroke, it tends to be this velocity dependent. And I think that's a, a very confusing term, but essentially what that, that means is, is that as you start the movement you feel that increased tone and as you start to stretch it out it actually becomes a, a little bit easier i think when i was a medical student it used to be called as as clasp knife I'd, i must admit i've never really seen that in practice but i guess what you're saying is as you start it's high and then it starts to loosen off certainly in terms of chronic stroke this is a massive problem so if you're detecting it it's usually a big problem for that person and what you've also got to differentiate between is is high tone and contractures so high tone or spastic posturing you would get that difficulty that resistance of pulling it out and stretching it out in the arm or bending the leg you'll find it very difficult or dorsiflexing the ankle you'll find it very difficult but you can do it, you can overcome that. Whereas in contractures, which you may well see, that reaches a limit where you cannot overcome it. It's either too painful or too, too it's just, it's, it's reached a point where it is, is no longer able to be fully extended or fully flexed. And that's a really important examination finding, certainly if that your examiner is involved in any way in terms of sort of rehab medicine, differentiating between high tone, which is reversible and correctable to a contractor is a very important distinction in terms of signs. Yeah, fantastic. And one, one thing I would be interested to know is if there are contractors, does that suggest that it's been a it's been a more chronic course that the stroke was some time ago? If if you end up ending up having those contractures, or oh, absolutely, and even high tone. So when we see high tone in acute stroke, we're instantly thinking about seizures. So if this is someone who's off the ward, they won't have developed that high tone. That often only develops weeks later. And as I say, only a proportion of people get that. But absolutely, if you have got a non overcomable high tone, i.e., a contracture, that is essentially poorly managed tone there is some people who believe no people should get contractures from stroke with effective management and yeah that certainly indicates a chronic course of the stroke fantastic so moving on to the next part of our neurological examination now that would be power and i guess the this is probably the seminal finding or the most critical part of your investigation uh, of your examination uh, paul and it's something we've already talked about we've already discussed but it's going to be an asymmetrical pattern of often pyramidal weakness and by that we mean as you've already described more of a flexor posturing in the upper limb and extensor posturing in the lower limb on that affected side and so I wonder if you can maybe just, is there anything else we need to be really pertinent about when we're examining the power of these patients in a, in a paces style scenario? Yeah. Oh God. Well, this is where I could really go on a, a whole different diatribe, which I'll try and, I'll try and hold back, Sam. 
I guess I would say the bits that we've just mentioned are actually the most important bits. The power and the sensation are actually the least because they're often not patterned as the way that you would expect them. So certainly in a stroke patient, they can have, in terms of how they have rehabilitated, they they can often have power in some areas and not others, and it doesn't necessarily follow a particular pattern. Um, So... I guess from a paces thing, yes, you want to say the old school 1930s definition of primal weakness, but I'm not sure in, if you find that it's not in keeping with that. That doesn't mean that it's a promote, not a promoting your own. Your main signs are the things that we've just talked about, and actually they're the, the main things is that tone and inspection. You'll get more from than the distribution of power that you're, you're finding because you may find, especially if they've had good rehabilitation or the patient's focused on hand dexterity rather than shoulder or their tonal problems have come from their pictorial problem. So therefore their abductions become really weak on their shoulder, but actually they've got a strong hand. You may find actually quite a hodgepodge of different power problems that don't necessarily go with that nice textbook paradigmal weakness, and that should not put you off, I guess, is the main message. And then, obviously, we want to use the MRC scoring for that, for what, whatever you're finding. Yeah, fantastic. And so I guess the, the lesson from that really is something that we learn in paces quite often is the mental agility to see a sign, understand it, and then also just take into account, well, they could have rehabbed very well or something like that, as you said. And then the other thing also, which we've talked about on this podcast before is the textbook description of something versus what we actually see in clinical practice, which often are very different. But yes, absolutely. We're going to want to talk about the MRC scale. So I don't feel like maybe we need to spend too much time on it, but if we just quickly run through, you will score a zero for no movement whatsoever, one movement for a flicker of movement from the uh, from the examined uh, muscle group. You'll score a two for movement with gravity neutralized. And Paul, this is one thing I wanted to uh, try and clarify with you is when we talk about neutralization of, of gravity, my understanding was that you you lift the arm yourself if the patient can't lift it and then for example they may be able to move their wrists if you're supporting the rest of their arm for example something like that or is it more nuanced than that god i I don't know if it is remember i'm a geriatrician stroke person rather than a neurologist stroke person so as i understand it is very much similar to you sam you're looking more for the lateral movements rather than against gravity and that's that's the, the main thing that you're trying to eliminate trying to get someone's limb to eliminate that gravity and it be free of resistance can then get you (laughs) in real knots and you look like you're performing some kind of yoga practice with the patient rather than something (laughs) meaningful. So I think, um, yes, that is the technical thing. So what you're trying to do is position the joint. So, uh, again, I'm doing that thing where I'm trying to show you but not – not explaining it so if you were testing extension rather than testing it like a um you know a sort of bodybuilder going up and down doing the sort of boxing stance you would want to bring it to the side so that they're just bringing it across almost like you're wiping a surface so yeah you're trying to take away that gravity element it's about the sort of main feeling of things so you're not going to be able to go through all your mrc gradings of the different power to the in the presentation what you're trying to get is a general feel of where they're weak and, and what sort of 
where that's localizing. Neurological examination is all about localization of symptoms. So you're trying to see if you're you haven't picked it up from your inspection, etc. Is is this localizing to nerve roots? Is it localizing to myotomes, or is it localizing to spine, or is it localizing to brain? That's your main thing, and the power is really for progress and whether someone's getting better or worse so that we've got some kind of classification. I don't think it necessarily has a big part in terms of your paces thing because if you start going in that the finger abduction was a four, the reflection was three, and the thumb abduction, you're going to be there all day trying to explain the different MRC grades of a, of a different person. So I think it's important to know because they may ask you a question about it but not necessarily important in your examination or, or presentation finding. Yeah, I guess the main thing would be is that if our listeners are examining, just making sure that they're, that they are examining as they would in the usual way. And I, But I do think there's a real fluency with if you're examining the patient and they can't lift their arm, do you know what to do? Oh, yes, I'm just going to lift it up and see if they can move in a horizontal plane. And then if they can lift it, are they drifting against gravity, which would give you a three? So they can move against gravity, but they can't push against any resistance, which would uh, which would that would still be a three. And then a four on the scale would be reduced power against resistance. So rather than just moving against gravity, they would they would actually be able to push to some degree against your resistance, but would you know, quickly fade. And then a five would be what we class as normal. So hopefully be able to overcome at least modest amounts of resistance. Yeah, I mean, it's another, I got, I'm, I'm really trying to resist doing digressions here, Sam, but I mean, it's, it's why the NIHSS score was developed because the reproducibility of MRC grades is so poor that we needed something that was reproducible by lots of different people. And you get all these three pluses, four pluses, which starts to become this quite sort of esoteric point. But I guess I guess that's what paces is, isn't it? We're trying to trying to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, it's one of those things about paces which probably isn't going away anytime soon until someone creates a new uh, a new muscle power scale. Just a quick nod to our podcast sponsors, Past Test, who have a huge back catalogue of revision videos on their online revision resource. Not only that, but they also have videos specific to examining a patient with hemiparesis in a neurology station to complement your learning from this episode of the show. So to get access, just click the link to pastest.com in the show notes. Moving on to the next part of our examination, we talk about reflexes. And so Paul, do you think reflexes is a particularly important uh, part of this uh, examination to go hand in hand with our tone? Is it is it reliable? Is it reproducible in in determining uppermost neuron lesions in the context of a suspected stroke patient? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. So it's it's not useful in 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 clinical practice. I think we rarely use it in clinical practice. But in terms of trying to identify whether something is an upper motor neuron or lower motor neuron, reflexes are you know they're they're a good sign as in tone as well as it's a good sign. Um, and one of the nice things for a paces examiner is it shows who's practiced and who isn't practiced. You know. If you can elicit reflexes like that super slick little bish bash bosh and getting the reflexes all the legs jolting everywhere, the arms doing everything, <laughs> super, it looks great. 
And it looks amazing and it shows that you've really put the work in. So whilst I don't think it's an important clinical sign in day-to-day things, in terms of passing an exam, it is worth spending a significant amount of time to get people into the positions reliably and you can confidently say whether reflexes are increased or or decreased. So yes, I think it's definitely for the exam something that's worth putting your, your time into. Yeah, totally agree. So making sure that as part of your examination, you are systematic, fluent, and able to, you know, ex- essentially almost examine with your eyes closed uh, on, uh, on, on, on the day of your exam. One of the other things which I don't know how relevant it might be in, in a stroke style scenario, but clonus is often which, something which they often mention in a patient style scenario. So how, uh, how helpful do you find clonus uh, in these patients? Yeah, so again, if it's a chronic patient with high tone, you you, you probably will pick up clonus. And again, it's it, I guess it's just one of those signs that if, if there's any doubt throughout what you've been going through, it can either be a thing that can either confuse you more or just sort of solidify, yeah, this is definitely a promotion your own. Maybe I haven't picked up all the, the other stroke stuff, but I guess a lot of it is just trying to gain confidence of what you're finding and if you're finding someone who's got clonus it's definitely a promotion your own then you've said it's spine or brain so if you haven't made it any further and you're still completely clueless if you're picking that sign up at least you can localize to two areas anatomically so i think it is a useful thing to do yeah absolutely and i guess the other thing is just to say if you are going to declare a clinical sign with regard to upper motor neurone lesions so the associated sign would be hyperreflexia. So you might expect the reflexes to be particularly brisk. And at least for my money, unless it is a marked difference compared to one side to the other, you're better off just saying there's no obvious hyperreflexia. Not unless you are, you know, when, I mean, I use my thumb to isolate the, the tendon itself. What I often find with brisk reflexes, you put your thumb there and, and the reflex will go. That's what I would class as a brisk reflex. Yeah. I mean, as I say, I don't use it much in, in, in clinical practice, but there's certainly a phenomenon where you elicit reflexes and you see contractions beyond where you have elicited that reflex. So yeah, for sure, it's it's usually there or it's not. And I think, I mean, we'll probably come on to this in presentation, but just generally in paces, just don't try and make stuff up. So certainly if I remember back to all my paces cases, all of it, some of them, or certainly some of them, are traps. And you just have to say what you see, you know, like Mr. Chips. You just have to say what you see. And if you say what you see, even if you don't get to your uh, final diagnosis, I, I got pretty much full marks in my paces, and I didn't get a single diagnosis throughout the whole thing. I, I, I was completely clueless at the end of them. But I guess all of them were signs that didn't make sense. But as long as you've elicited those and said it truthfully, they know you're trustworthy and that you're actually eliciting the proper signs. So absolutely, don't try and try and make it fit the box. Just say what you see. Yeah, and and often, at least anecdotally from examiners who I've spoken to, they look down much more on people making up signs that aren't there than they do for people missing signs. Anyway, that's just an anecdotal note. Well, guys, that wraps up the first part of my conversation with stroke consultant, Dr. Paul Sellers. 
In part two, we will be finishing off the examination and covering the presentation, differential diagnosis, investigations, management, common examiner questions, and of course, Paul's quiz the consultant where he answers questions on Metallica. So all of that to come in the next episode, but I'm afraid that is the end of today's show. Please do like, comment, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Contact us either on Twitter or by email. We love hearing from you. We love hearing your success stories. And if you have had some success in Paces or you just love the show and want to help directly support us, you can contribute on the Buy Me A Coffee page. It's buymeacoffee.com slash pre-Paces podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces podcast.